All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here. You can watch or listen in on RT.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to the latest episodes on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, etc. for free. This week, we're going to be talking about the Ireland Women's Friendlies, the latest League of Ireland action, Mark Cannon's Football Pathways Plan, and much more. So I'll be joined by Keith Tracy and Paul Corey. But first, the Ireland Women's Senior Team are in the midst of action. Andrew nil-nil against Italy and Florence on Friday evening, and they play Wales on Tuesday. It was a largely impressive display against the Italians, especially in the first half when they pressed intensely, kept possession well and played in a different shape to the usual one that they have been using. RT Sports' Anthony Pine has been reviewing the game for us. I caught up with him on Saturday. There was, there was a tweak to the approach, uh, which Eileen Gleeson spoke about after the game, and, and she was very pleased with the adaptability and the flexibility that the team had shown. I mean, we had seen a 3-5-2 quite a bit in the Nations League, obviously very successfully, but Ireland were playing a better team last night than they've faced since the World Cup. Italy are ranked 14th in the world, uh, and so they changed things up a little at four at the back um, and had a sort of 4-1-4-1 formation, which offered them real solidity without the ball. Um, but they troubled Italy. They looked good. They played some really good stuff. Um, it was a very close tight game but I was impressed with Ireland I was impressed with how they moved the ball through the thirds how they built from the back uh, I was impressed by the fact that they basically had a new engine room in there they were missing Tyler Toland and Denise O'Sullivan of course uh, who had been present throughout the whole Nations League ever present um, Jesse Stapleton came in and did really well in midfield uh, alongside Megan Connolly and Rusha Littlejohn and then on, on the two Wings, Izzy Atkinson was, was really good again. Uh, and Jess Sue did really well. First game in 17 months, I think, uh, for Jess. She, she suffered an ACL injury and she's just coming back. So it was great to see her. And she, she is a real asset as well, uh, Raph. A strong asset who would have went to the World Cup, I think, had she not suffered that injury. Uh, the only thing I would say about Ireland, I, th- I think if Ireland had genuine pace up front, they would take some stopping. I, I really think it would be, if they, if they had raw pace, it would give them a totally different dimension. Kira Caruso had another strong game. Um, she's excellent at holding the ball up. She's really good at bringing play- other players into the game, um, but she's not particularly quick. Uh, and although we do have players like Jessu, Izzy Atkinson, Leanne Kiernan come off the bench and did well, you know, clever, sprightly attackers, we don't have really, really genuine pace I don't think and that, and that is unfortunate there's nothing really Eileen Gleeson can do about that it's just it, it is what it is but what we do have is, is a strong competitive squad that looks deep uh, and she has options and, and those options are allowing her to play a couple of different systems which you know is something that she really wants to implement she doesn't want the team to be one-dimensional and predictable so this is all part of I guess the evolution and, and the move towards playing more expansively and getting the balance right and this is crucial I mean, it, it wouldn't make sense to approach a game against Italy who bet Spain in the Nations League just before Christmas they bet Spain 3-2 like it doesn't make sense to approach that game in the same way that you, you, you would approach with all due respect to Albania but you know obviously they're a weaker team and, and you can you can take more risks in terms of how you're set up when you lose the ball because you know you're going to get the ball back quicker. Um, there were periods of the game where Ireland kept the ball really well but there were also periods of the game where they had to live without the ball and they did that really well. So I thought it was really encouraging for them. Uh, they have Wales uh, at Tallis Stadium on Tuesday. Uh, the indications are that are that will be a, a very healthy crowd and it could be a record crowd indeed um, for an Ireland women's home international at Tala, of course, they played at the Aviva Stadium last September. So, look, seven games into Eileen Gleason's reign now. Six wins, one very creditable draw. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, m- missing players, like key players like Denise, Tyler Toland, and, and there's a few others. Like It's, it's a competitive, deep squad. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's summed up probably by Neve Fatty picking up the Player of the Match Award. She hadn't played since the World Cup. Louise Quinn was on the bench. Aoife Mannion was on the bench. Diane Caldwell was on the bench. Um, so we're well stocked, you know, uh, in, in most compartments. Right, so that is RT Sports' Anthony Pine there speaking to me on Saturday in the wake of the nil-all draw against Italy. And, of course, the Wales game, um, which is taking place in Tala on Tuesday, is live on RT2 and the RT Player at 7pm. We'll also have a live blog on rt.ie sport and the RTE News app. And the shape... 
of the team that Eileen Gleeson picked was a 4-5-1, it seemed, uh, initially. So, um, obviously, Brosnan in goals, and then you had Heather Payne, Caitlin Hayes, Neve Fahey, who got player of the match, returned at, at, at left centre-back, and then you had Katie McCabe at left-back, and then you had Jessu tucked in slightly from the right-hand side, and then a very combative midfield of Rusha Littlejohn, Jess Stapleton, Megan Connolly, and then on the left side, and more... Um, Unlike Sue on the other side, you had uh, Izzy Atkinson, who was hugging the touchline a little bit more on the left, and then Kira Carusa, who was leading the line and pressing from the front. And uh, Eileen Gleeson spoke about this formation change and the shape that she went with in Florence after the game. Yeah, well, I think the big thing for us um, is that we want to be adaptable, so we don't want to be tied to any one system or formation. I mean, we more talk about how we occupy space so tonight we wanted to have a back four um potentially they would push up um three we didn't particularly want to be three for three so four for four but in gone or four four v three we, we always talk about creating numbers up so at that point um we're making the decision to try out the back four um doesn't mean we're extra defensive you see and we still pushed up higher we were still aggressive in a press and we still had out balls that would at times um, put us into a back three and be able to push up a, a, a full back higher and a, and a wide player inside. So, yeah, we want to be able to adapt. We want to be able to play in three, four, five, whatever we need to do, whatever suits us, whatever suits the attributes within the team and whoever the opposition are. And player of the match was Ni Fahi, as I said earlier, uh, who was back from injury, which had kept her out of Ireland's matches since the World Cup. She was speaking to Anthony after the match as well. Neve, well done. Um, welcome back. How good did that feel to, to play so well in your return? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, great to be back. Um, I think it was overall a really positive performance. Uh, probably they had chances, we had chances, but um, against a top quality side, I think we more than matched them and held our own. And yeah, just I'm really happy to be back personally as well. And um, yeah, just oh, just just a good feeling and a, a good performance. This week has been your first sort of taste of, of life in, under Eileen's managership. Uh, how, how have you found it? Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Um, the whole setup is so professional. I was so impressed from the first day that I, I came in. Obviously, I missed the Nations League. And then just to get a feel for the setup, um, it's a it's a high-performance elite setup. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's where it should be. And I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be part of it at the minute. All right, so that was Niamh Fahi, uh, Republic of Ireland defender and also player of the match against Italy on Friday evening. And a reminder that Tuesday's friendly against Wales will be live on RT2 and RT Player from 7 o'clock. Now I'm joined by Paul Corey and Keith Tracy, and we've got plenty to talk about, including the uh, the Carabao Cup final, lots of League of Ireland action as well. But we're, we're going to start is last week's football pathway plan, which was presented by Mark Cannon, the FAI Director of Football, which is a blueprint of where the associations are looking to take the game in regards to the structures and player development and the calendar. And Paul, I know you spoke a bit about it on um, Game On last week. And I suppose we'll get into the, the plan itself and what it means and, you know, the pros and cons. But it, I guess something is needed given just how fragmented the game has been traditionally here for such a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the discussion we had last week was just in and around how many different parties seem to be involved in, in Irish football and probably for too long now we've had people pulling in opposite directions. So listen, the the document in itself is is a starting point, Raph. I think something is better than nothing. And a lot of time seems to have gone into you know, formalizing a bit of a strategy and, and trying to get people pulling in the same direction and, and trying to get, I guess, a bit of an identity around Irish football, but also a bit of a framework around younger players to help develop that talent because we don't have those avenues to to the UK anymore, whereby the likes of Akita would have gone at a younger age, was in a world-class environment over in Blackburn Rovers, getting huge amount of contact hours. This plan, certainly, it lends itself as... A strategy and, and there's ideas there with regards to kind of you know integrating football into education increasing contact hours and all of this is great stuff and it looks brilliant on a page but at the end of the day we need funding to back it up and you know you don't have to go too far with regards to league of ireland grounds or league of ireland academy facilities to understand how far away we are from what is let's say the norm across europe and 
it's not bad from a perspective of you can use that document, I think, from a funding perspective to try improve facilities across the board. But we have stood still for, for so, so long now. Um, one, with regards to kind of the development of players and how we coach players. Two, with the facilities. And three, with kind of the way we play up through the age grades and through to the senior team. And we've seen such a fall in, in how we've performed, um, particularly with the international team, the senior international team, over the last number of years with major competitions and struggling to get results. And it probably has taken for somebody to hit a bit of a pause button and actually go, okay, where are we taking this? So I don't mind the document. Um, I think there is some good stuff in there, but it it then becomes about, okay, who's going to be accountable for this? Who's going to execute on it? And where are we going to find the money? Because every sport now seems to be looking for a chunk of change from the government everything that's gone on with the FAI, I would say there's probably a bit of uncertainty there with regards to how much money and where the money is going to go to. I think this document can help in that sense. Yeah. And the calendar year issue um, is probably the one that's got the, uh, that's probably the one where there's least agreement, but uh, we'll touch on that very briefly. And I have a clip of uh, Kevin Doyle, former Republic of Ireland international talking about situation in Wexford, but uh, Keith, I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of working on the ground in terms of the coaching at, at underage and you've seen it yourself in your own career, what the pathways have looked like before, Obviously, things have are things are changing with Brexit in the UK. But for you, what are you seeing on the ground? And you know, from your from what you've seen of the pathways plan, you know what what are the pros and cons you're looking at there? Well, the, the biggest soundbite that came out for me was I, I think it was Mark Canham saying that he wants the under 15s and the senior team and everybody in between to have the same style of play. He wants it to be very evident that when you watch an Irish team play that, you know, even if we're not wearing the green jersey, you'll still be able to say that's an Irish team playing, which for me is nonsensical. I think any manager who who's worth assault and is going to come in and think about taking the the senior men's job, if he's hearing that he's going to have to walk within a framework of the FAI, then I, I don't think it's a very, I don't think anybody's looking at chomping at the bit thinking I can get what I need to get out of those players with me hands tied behind me back, given the style of play that you want to play. I, I don't see. It. I think it's putting a lot of lot of a uh, lot of managers, well, would be managers, off being told how they need to how to how they need to go about it. But again, like all these words sound brilliant. It's very well put together. It, it, it does ignite that little bit of passion in you when you hear them talking about all these things. But I'm going to be doing a, a lot of stuff for the League of Ireland this season with with various different companies. But the the truth of it is, Raf, there's probably a handful of of stadiums in the league that would actually look well on the TV in terms of talent. Maybe maybe Pats and Inchicore looks all right in the, on the TV. When you look at the likes of Bowers, it doesn't look great on the TV. Drotta, the Dundalk, it doesn't look good enough. So there's only, you know, you, you're, you're, you're taking yourself out and the TV companies don't want to come and, and watch a home game there because the stadium is so bad. So the stuff at the top level of Irish football needs to be sorted and the stuff down at the bottom level needs to be sorted and everything in between. So... It's a huge, huge ask, and I'm hopeful that this new FAOI might, you know, deliver with some of these words. I'm really hopeful, but in terms of being on the ground, I'm still seeing very little resources being thrown at us and saying, there you go, last there's a hand out. It's, it's very, very difficult to, to get where we need to go with this. Yeah, and let's listen to Kevin Doyle, just on the calendar year issue. So this is the plan is to go from essentially reflecting where the League of Ireland is in terms of summer football so that it starts off really from January all the way till December rather than, say, the the English model, which is starts off in the autumn, finishes uh, towards the, uh, you know, the start of the summer. Lots of good stuff, lots of things you would want um, to see in there. And I think, you know, over the course of the last few years, just me, I'm involved day to day in with my kids in Wexford and underage football and all the stuff they speak about in this thing. And I, the first thing I look for, I suppose, is what we're going to get over, or my local club, Glenbarrentown, we're involved with heavily. And how is it going to affect us? And unfortunately, the first thing I see is a problem because they're, I know they're not going to want me to hear me saying this uh, in the FAI, but talking about aligning the seasons. It was summer soccer they tried to bring in a few years ago. I think they've rebranded it now to, to the calendar year, they're calling it. And... Just in country clubs, in Wexford, in clubs like our own, we have fabulous amount of players. I think we have the most in any club in the county of players, but they all also play GA in the summer. So you're talking about getting the, this whole document, so getting more people and more people involved, more players involved, more coaches. It'll be the opposite for us. We will lose players. Players will be burned out. Players won't be able to, Parents will be burnt out. It's just not possible. I have three young kids. They all play soccer. They all play GA. They play hurling, play football. And it's a nightmare for those months at the end of the season and the month at the start of the season where the, the whole lot overlap. So for us to 
to have to do that during the summer is just not going to work. We're going to have to pick one or the other, and that's going to be the case. And in a country club like Wexford, it's going to be GA will win out a lot more than soccer. And but I know he talks about collaborating. And 11,000 hours We have coaches who do more. You know, we have coaches who do the GA and in the winter coach the soccer team. We're going to, they can't do it all. So you They'll lose be coaches, we'll you lose think? Coaches. It's just, I'd love to them to come to us, come to Wexford. It's a massive soccer county. I know we're seen as a GA, a massive soccer county. Come. You know, I, I played for Ireland. I'm now uh, I'm de facto chairman of this club. I, everyone else does all the work, but my name is down as chairman. But to come and, you know, to speak to grassroots, we're a perfect example of a grassroots football club who needs help. We want to see... Footballs, bibs, goals for pitches. That's what we want to see out of report. We don't care about the bigger, you know, big words, waffly stuff in report. We want to see what we can get week to week that will help us, help our young kids. Six-year-olds said we start at five years of age up to men's teams. The men's teams will lose. They have an A and a B team. If it goes to them having to play during the summer, which it says in the report they will have to play follow the League of Ireland season, they will lose at least one team because every one of them plays GA. Kevin Doyle speaking last week on our Champions League coverage uh, to Joanne Cantwell there, just about his thoughts on the aligning of the seasons. And Paul, just on that, I mean, when you look at the, uh, the in the consultation feedback, I think 65% of the people surveyed are um, you know okay with the idea of going to calendar year football and aligning the seasons in that way but there needs to be plenty of buy-in to make this work it does but at the same time Raf, i think if you're trying to get agreement across everybody and across all stakeholders and parties you'll be here till 2030 before we get any sort of agreement in place so i think you know, from the FAI's point of view, I can absolutely understand why it is they've pushed forward with this calendar year. A lot of uh, a lot of the documents isn't around participation and in increasing the the hours kids have in playing games. And you speak to any parent or speak to any underage side over the Christmas period and heading into January and February has been a nightmare because pitches haven't been playable, games have been called off, and kids aren't having those contact hours. So switching from you know your so-called winter football into summer football you would like to think will increase the contact hours that kids are going to have with football and in matches and training sessions and so on. So from, from that perspective, I can certainly understand it. I just think if you're going to try balance everybody's opinions and, and what everybody wants as being the ideal situation, you'll be here for too long trying to get something in place. And listen, I can understand Kevin Doyle's, or, uh, yeah, Kevin Doyle's point, but at the same time, you know, participation in sport is about fun and it's also about enjoyment and I think the ones who enjoy football will probably lend themselves or who have an appetite to play football will make that decision at some point in their life that they're going to go down one avenue one way or another and maybe it's going to come a little earlier but I'm not sure it's going to rule out too many people who have the potential to go on and make a career whether it be in League of Ireland or whatever level that might be so uh, I back the decision. I think it increases our participation and increases our contact hours, which is so, so important when you're comparing yourself against countries across the Europe. Because I know Keith has mentioned this before. Kids in the UK are, are double and tripling the, the amount of time and training sessions they have compared to what we're getting into to kids um, in Ireland. So this move hopefully at least increases the chances and increases the development time that we have. Yeah, I think it's something Damien Duff has raised plenty of times in terms of the, you know, the the amount of training sessions. Uh, pretty much, yeah, as you said, it is double. And I think, in fairness, in the FAI document as well, they did uh, talk about. I think for the very youngest age grades, that they're more than happy uh, for people to sort of combine sports because we are a multi-sport nation as well. So um, we'll see we'll see where that goes. Obviously, in terms of the fund, the potential funding for it, and uh, some of the other issues that will be uh, you know that'll be poured over over time. But let's talk League of Ireland and. Uh, just a reminder, this Friday, we've got Derry City against St. Patrick's Athletic live on RT2 and the RT player at 7.35pm. So that's our next live game. And then we'll also have a live blog on rt.ie slash sport and the RT News app covering all of the Premier Division games. And the results last Friday, Waterford with a very, very notable 4-1 win away at Drogheda United. Galway United also the other promoted team to have uh, got their first win of the season and they beat Dundalk 2-0 away. Shells uh, in a derby match against Shamrock. Rovers, who are, seem to be making a slow start as they did last season, won 2-1 and uh, Bowes won 1-0 at St. Pat's, although there were other matters that happened in the game that also gained a lot of attention. And then on Saturday night, Sligo Rovers and Derry City drew nil all and 
of course, when you do all the maths and you look at the table, no team has got a 100% record and already we're two rounds in at this stage. But um, Keith, I know you were uh, you were alongside Oshin Langan on commentary at uh, Richmond Park on Friday night. And before we talk about the flares and all the other stuff that went on early in the second half, uh, Bose's performance first, I mean, they... They'd started off with a fairly, you know, a, a draw. Maybe they would have been disappointed with at home to Sligo Rovers last week, but they defended really well um, at Pats, and then they they got the goal as well. Yeah, it was a it was a strange old strange old night because I, I was doing interviews before the game, and the narrative seemed to be that Bows are a little bit weak defensively, and Pats are so strong offensively that they'll be able to hoard them, and Pats will just get the win, and that that's basically what what the the minds were thinking, but. As soon as Bowles come out, you know, Pats, they, they, they huffed and puffed for about five, ten minutes of, the, of the, the, the start of the game, but they didn't force the issue. You know, when Bowles went there with play, they walked over, they passed backwards. It was all nice, nicey. <clears throat> the Bowles, uh, the two banks of four for Bowles didn't really have to walk that hard to, to cover the ground because the Pats passing was so slow. At times, Rory Keaton was really, really isolated. <clears throat> the ball was getting fired up to him and Jake Mulraney and Keane Levy were playing as inverted wingers. So it was sort of a box midfield type of thing. So there's very, very little width. The two fullbacks were Pats were trying to provide the width, but it was like 50, 60 yard runs to get up the pitch. So really, really difficult. A lot to work on from Pats. But I thought I thought Bowes were brilliant. <clears throat> a perfect away performance. They uh, not a lot people don't like using this term, but game management, they managed the game really well. At times it looked like Bowes were happy to let the game drift and just let it go to a draw, but as the away team going to Inchicore, given the draw to Sligo, you're thinking Bows are well within their rights to come here and get a point. But the more the game seemed to go, I looked at Ushin halfway through, I, I put the lazy button on my mic and I said, this has Bows written 1-0 all over it. And he smiled at me and said, no chance. And when they won the penalty, which I have to be honest, I didn't think it was a penalty. I thought it was a little bit soft. The the keeper could have done a lot better. He saw him in no man's land and he decides he's going and, there's not an awful lot of contact, but I can see why the ref gave it, but for me, it wasn't a penalty. And You know, I, I said, I hope that John Daly and Pats don't come out and say that we've lost the game because of a dodgy penalty decision, which is the case, but I don't think Pats did enough. It was a Dublin derby. There was one or two tackles flying in, but they didn't push the tempo. They didn't play like the home team. They were very one-paced at times. And I thought Pats got the little slap on the wrist that they deserved. So, yeah, it was a dodgy penalty decision and maybe Bowers, you know, didn't really trouble the goalkeeper up to that, but you need to do more if you're the home team in a Dublin derby. I mean, when I played for Pats, the fixture list comes out. You look at Europe, you think, when is Europe? Who are we going to get? And you look at the Bowes fixtures because they're the ones that really matter to the fans. And they didn't turn up. I know uh, I was I was impressed with Keane Levy. I thought he was decent in the middle of the pitch, had a decent game. But other than that, I thought we were scrapping around for, for large, large periods of the game. And Chris Forrester as well didn't really get it, get it, you know, get the game with a scruff of the neck as you would like. So a lot to work on for Pats. I thought they struggled because he didn't have too much width in the game. But fair play to Bowers. You know, a lot of people said they would be weak defensively. That Hakeem Bourne was excellent, and they just did what they had to do in an away performance. Yeah, I, I need to find out where the lazy button is on the mic and start <laughs> using it a bit more. <laughs> but uh, uh, you were talking about how um, Rory Keaton was isolated for Pats. And one thing I kind of know, I don't know if you, um, I don't know what you made of it, but um, you know, Sten Reincourt, the the Bulls centre forward, like he's a big physical presence. But James Clark, who seemed to have a really good game and had a good influence for Bulls, they seemed to went their best stuff seemed to come when the two of them were able to link up a little bit closer. You know, I think I think Bowers had a, a clear plan that obviously Pats are going to have a bit of the play. They're going to try and su uh, suffocate us, pen us into our own half. So they were happy to just win it, go to Ryan for it. And I think Clark was the one that was told, when that ball goes forward, you're getting released. You need to be the one to get close to him. I, I love James Clark. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant footballer. He looks one pace, but I think that's the sort of one pace that you look at Xavi and Iniesta and you think, they never look, they never look in trouble. I think it's because he reads the game so, so well can manipulate the ball and move it really quickly. So he's getting better with every game, James Clark. And I like to look at look at Ryan Ford. He's not he's not one that you look at him initially and think he'll score 20 goals this season, but he's an absolute handful and people around him will get more goals because of him. So nobody will relish playing against that big boy whatsoever. So Bowes have a base that if they can defend like that for the majority of the season, they'll be there or thereabouts come come the end. But I have a feeling it was a Dublin derby and Bowes really got the bit between their teeth with the Sligo draw. They, they felt their backs was against the wall. So do I see Bowes playing like that every week? 
unfortunately not. So I, I do think they'll drop a, a couple of points over the season, which will see them drop down the league. But not bad, not bad from a away performance going to Inchicore. I thought they were spot on, exactly what Declan Devine would have wanted. Yeah, and Paul, like looking at it from the defensive point of view as well, because given they were coming into the game with uh, Rob Cornwall having suffered uh, an ACL injury, and then you you know they've signed a lot of defenders in the last in the last week or so um, as well. I think about four of them have, have come in. But you look at the lineup they named Matt Lillander at right back, you've Keen Byrne, um, you know Paddy Kirk who's normally a left back, um, slotting at left centre back, and then you've Jordan Flores who's traditionally more of a midfielder playing at left back and. Uh, that it seems more, you know, sometimes you can be missing you can be missing the big names and the key cornerstones, but it's just how you're drilled on the night as well. Yeah, and they looked really well set up. And I, I think it's it's been an important start for Declan Devine because there's huge expectations from both fans um over the last number of years. And obviously losing out in the cup final won't have helped, but they also finished the league quite sluggishly last year. So I think getting off to a good start was was really important. That was a huge result on Friday night for a couple of reasons. And the clean sheet, like you mentioned, Raf probably being one of them. I, I certainly feel for Declan Devine because when you look at the players that they brought in, like Keith Buckley was brought in to, to sweep up in front of the back four and be that sort of experienced head. They lost him to an ACL. Then they lost Cornwall to an ACL. They've lost Talbot as well. So the spine of the team has has been really disrupted um, from a defensive point of view. And there's all, they've also lost the goals from, from Afalabi at the top end. So it was a really well-drilled performance. And that's probably something that you come to expect from Declan Devine just with regards to how he has his team set up. But... There'll be stiffer tests to come for, for that back four. Whether or not they can get through, you know, the first round of games playing that back four, I'm not too sure. We'll certainly see, you know, the the new signings that they have, how they slot in and what sort of level they're playing at. Because when players come from outside the league, it's difficult to get a bearing until you see them up against some of the other sides. But like he'd mentioned, grafting out and being difficult to, to play against and bringing an intensity and an aggression to the game should be the absolute minimum that both bring and it should be the minimum that their fans tend to expect and then you're hoping at the top end of the pitch whether it's Rooney, Connolly, Danny Grant off the bench, James Clark, you hope that they can sprinkle a bit of magic and they're certainly going to need goals from from those players because losing Afalabi is, is just massive for them um, and how good he was in big moments and big games. So a lot more to come, but for Declan Devine, like when I was looking at the table and looking at teams who needed fast starts, Devine was one because you certainly felt that if results went against them, there'd be a bit of disgruntlement around both fans and around Daily Man Park. But the four points, if you think about the last minute equaliser against Sligo, the late winner against Pats, that's good momentum for them to build on. Yeah, and let's talk about the issue of the flares that were thrown on um, early in the second half. So uh, it appears to be part of a coordinated protest um, by both sets of fans, but one flare from the Bose section uh, hit Key and Byrne, and uh, again, another one appeared to be thrown into another crowd of players as well. And uh, let's listen to Declan Devine on that, as, uh, on that and particularly on uh, how uh, Byrne was affected. About the protest at halftime with the Bow supporters threw flares on the pitch, hit one of your players. What's your comments about that? Uh, listen, I'm not going to comment on it. I think that's something the club will address themselves. Um, but there was, there's well, no it could have been a serious injury. Uh, there, listen, Kim Burns, Kim Burns come away with a burnt arm. But look, I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just concentrating on one of the game tonight. But I think right well, throughout. Well, there's been incidents in the past. I think before. right throughout the league, it's an issue. I think right throughout the league, the polyethics or whatever they are, they're, 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 they're becoming a problem. Pats have let a lot of flares yeah. off here in the first of half as well. Yeah. So I think as a league, we got to understand that it's not a Bulls issue or a Pats issue. As a league, we're going to have to come together and try and get a conclusion because somebody else is going to get hurt. Well, the referee obviously brought the players off to the sideline. Now, we've seen it before. I expect Feyenoord last season, the referee abandoned the game for something similar as well. I mean, could have been better than his rights to call the game off. Yeah, it could have been. And again, it's, it's, something, that, it's something that as a league, we're going to have to decide where we're going with it. But the bottom line for me is tonight, I think both sets of, play, both sets of fans have let off, have let off flares. Uh, it's not acceptable that they're coming close to players or, or, or in danger of hurting someone. Mm. But uh, the bottom line for me is uh, the outside noise and everything else tonight was about us performing, and, and that's all I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to take away from tonight. So that is Bohemians manager Declan Devine speaking to John Kenny after the match just about the uh, the issue of the flares getting thrown onto the pitch. Now, in uh, yesterday, Bowes released a statement condemning the incidents, and they went on to say that the club is now in the process of reviewing all available footage and photographs 
broadcast from Friday's game with the aim of identifying those responsible and can confirm that anyone identified as throwing flares will be indefinitely banned from Bohemians as games. And uh, Keith, um, listen to you, listening to you on the commentary as you saw it sort of unfold. I know the the term you threw out was idiots. Maybe there were maybe other adjectives or other nouns you, you might have probably gone for, but you probably need a bleep button beside the lazy one as well. But no, look, in, in all seriousness, no, um, you know, you you witnessed it firsthand uh, and obviously it's a it's a horrible thing, especially when it's getting thrown at a player. But um, what do you want to see done now to to deal with issues like this going forward? Well, first of all, Rafa, when I speak to the Bowers and the Pats fans, because this happened in the FAI Cup final as well, players being thrown onto the pitch, disrupting the play, oh, you understand the frustration towards the League of Ireland, towards the FEI, the way things have been run. I, I totally understand that. I've been around League of Ireland long enough now to know that there's a, a huge undercurrent of people who are just not happy with how it's going. I get that. I'm, I'm totally on side. I'm on that side of the fence, which is, but throwing flares under the pitch, throwing flares at players, disrupting games, breaking it up. That's not what we want to see. Nobody wants that. We need to come together as a fan base, as, as Irish people, we need to be more conducive about how we go about this because throwing flares onto the pitch, hitting players, disrupting, burning the grass, it's not going to get us what we want. It's not going to get us where we need to go. It's just going to get us this, this tag of, oh, well, the Irish league is mental. They're throwing flares left, right and centre. They look brilliant in the crowd. When they let off before the game, they look great. They, they provide an atmosphere. You start being stupid and throwing them on the pitch at players. I mean, it, hit, it hits Keane Bourne on the arm. If that's a, a yard higher, it could be a hit him on the face and we're talking serious injury there. Game abandoned. Nobody wants to see this sort of stuff. So, again, I understand the frustration. I'm on board with the frustration, but you can't just go around doing silly things, stupid things to disrupt the games. We can't do that. We can't. We don't want to leak over to that because the game, every like I said, it was a Dublin derby. We're starting to get a little bit of momentum, a couple of tackles flying in. Then all of a sudden, there's three or four flares on the pitch and it takes the guts of five, six minutes to get it all sorted out and go again. And it was killing momentum. It was killing everything. It was killing the game as a spectacle as well. So, look, I understand the frustration, but... I don't want to see any more of that. I think everybody, when it when it hit Key and Bourne, everybody's heart went in their mouth and thought, oh God, no, this is not what we need. And I'm sure, you know, the, it, it came from a Bowes section, but I wouldn't tire all the Bowes fans with that. The Pats fans, they weren't throwing them on the pitch as much, but it was flares all over the stadium, in fairness. So, I don't know. I, I understand I understand frustration, Raph, but that's not how we need to go about it as a, as a set of supporters, as, as League of Ireland fans. It's not the way forward and it's not the way we want people seeing our game. Yeah, and of course, as uh, as mentioned in the Bose statement there, there will probably be consequences, but we'll see um, what happens with that. But um, Shelburne got a very, uh, you know, a very notable win against Shamrock Rovers, Paul. And uh, would you put it down as a sort of statement win? Because there was a there was stats going around about how long it has been since uh, Shelburne have beaten Shamrock Rovers and also just how important it is for Damien Duff as well. And I suppose considering as well, they missed an early penalty that Tyreek Wilson sort of put wide of the post. Yeah, I'd certainly put it down as a statement, Rune Raff, and I, I say that in the context that they've been building towards this in the sense that Shamrock Rovers have found it very, very difficult to play against. Um, or Shamrock Rovers have found it very difficult to play against Shells in, in kind of recent games, and they're always so well set up, and it feels like they've kind of been putting extra pieces of the jigsaw together in recent years whereby the structures were there, and now they've got extra players and more strength and depth to, to add that bit more quality. And you could certainly see that in the first half. I mean, they really penned Shamrock Rovers in and caused a number of problems with their system, but also with their play. And it could have been more, to be brutally honest with you, in the first half. I know that maybe comes from some sluggish and sloppy Shamrock Rovers play, but don't take away from, from Shelburne and the intensity that they played with and the, the chances that they created. You mentioned there they had a, had a missed penalty as well. And I think when you look at the goals and how they were worked, um, obviously Coyle's done really well from outside the box beautiful finish and then the Jarvis goal as well might be a long ball but it's it's certainly an avenue that you can certainly see that they've worked on and tried to exploit with his pace and, and just touch and I just think when you when you look at Shells and you take a step back they've got the foundations and they've got the players now to to go on and, and push on to the next level and it certainly feels like this is the season that they've been best placed to do that and Damien Duff has them so well drilled. Joey O'Brien, you can see from a defensive point of view, has them so well drilled. And when it came to that period of having to put their backs up against the wall, that back five defended really well. And Conor Kearns had to come up with big saves, and he did. But I just think from a 
you know, a defensive point of view, they're very, very difficult to to break down. And yes, it was Shamrock Rovers in the first half who maybe were in second or third gear and it wasn't them at their fluid best. But I think you have to give credit to Shells because they they sometimes suffocate you and stifle you that they can actually hamper the momentum or the fluidity that you play with. And they're going to be a really difficult team to play against again this year. I think I think they've gone to another level and I think they'll win more games and score more goals this season because of the players that they've added. And you also have to take into consideration that, you know, they were out Sean Boyd. Jack Moylan has gone out the door and they're having to shuffle the pack to deal with that. But it's a big win. It's a big statement. I think this is, you know, certainly a squad now that you can certainly see pushing for, for one of those top four positions. And I think that is a very, very realistic aim for Shells this year and see how deep they can go then in the cup competitions and, and build from there. But the early signs are very, very good, Raf, And it seems like they just continue to go from strength to strength. Yeah, and uh, on the other side of it, though, um, Shamrock Rovers uh, manager, Stephen Bradley, he was furious with his sides defending and he put it down. It's it's probably the worst defensive display I've ever seen from us. And uh, he felt that his back three played into to Shells' hands. Would you kind of concur? I, I mean, look, he's it, obviously it's kind of reactive when he's saying that, but there may be there may have been maybe worse games during during his tenure as well in terms of the defensive side. But again, I guess they'll have Pico Lopez back. That's going to be one one cornerstone and there will and you know I'm sure as we saw last season as well they will they'll they'll get some momentum and then they'll be back challenging towards the top because that just seems to be the way it is with them the last couple of seasons oh absolutely and listen they had a, they had a number of quality players out the on, on the park the other night but they're also missing a huge amount of players who were so instrumental to how they play I think what will really hurt Stephen Bradley is the nature of the goals that they gave away I think the first one when Coyle gets the ball out of his feet Sean Hoare can do more and he and he can put more pressure on Coyle just to put his head down. He's given him a bit too much room to just use his body and guide it into, into the right-hand corner. And then the second goal, it's not something you typically see with Rovers. Um, you know, a ball that has directly come from a goal kick in between the two centre-halves. There's just an element of confusion between Honahan and Cleary and Jarvis takes advantage of that. And you probably reflect and go, if Pico's in there, it maybe doesn't happen, one, because he's so quick and he can eat up the ground and probably match Jarvis, but also he, he's such a presence and he's such a good communicator that he probably takes ownership of that situation and he and he stamps it out. But there's a bit of transition there, Raf. Like, Pico isn't there at the moment. Alan Manis, I, I know Liam Poles pulled off a number of great saves, but there's a relationship there that Poles has to build with his back three. Now, yes, he played games last year, but hasn't played you know, that 20, 30, 40 games with that back three. And I think that might just take a bit of time to to transition. And then, like, you, ha you, you have to bring in and you have to take into consideration that they're without Jack Byrne. They've Aaron McInef to come back in. Um, Neil Farouge is out. Trevor Clark is out. They've so many players that will come back into the fold that they will go on and win games. But it, it just seems like it's taken... Similar to last year, they're gotten off to a bit of a slow start, but you would expect that they would run through the gears and they would start to pick up points. They've a good opportunity at home against Drogheda this Friday. But the one thing I will say on them is, having watched them against Dundalk and then having watched them on against again on Friday, when you take Neil Farouge's pace out of that team, not that they become predictable, but they have to be very precise with how they play because they don't really have that individual who can stretch in behind or who's going to go wide in one one areas and take players on. So from a defensive point of view, from a Shell's point of view, you know that you can kind of afford to give them a bit of space in behind because they haven't got those legs to stretch in behind. And I think the sooner they can get a nail, even a Trevor Clark, somebody who's powerful and quick over those five, 10 yards, that has been so important for them in recent years, whether it's been Andy Lyons when he's gone wide, whether it's been Neil, whether it's been Ronan Finn who's played high and wide, they need that outlet. And that gets them so many goals, gets them so many uh, dangerous areas, and, and it creates so many chances. And when you take that out, you look around the, the players that they had, Dara Burns, Dylan Watts, Dara Nugent, you know, Rory Gaffney is quick, but probably not got that blister in pace. You start going, okay, if they drop behind, if a team sits in, it's difficult to break them down. And they they maybe have found that. But I would expect that the goals will come and the chances will, will, will certainly come with it. But they need to find that little bit of spark, I think, in wide areas.
Yeah, and one final point on this game between Shells and Shamrock Rovers. So it's Damien Duff's comments afterwards uh, um, about just how laid back Will Jarvis is and that while he doesn't train particularly well, he's had to bite his lip because Jarvis always turns up on the on the Friday night and play and plays really well. And there was sort of a comparison made to Berbatov from his uh, time playing with him at Fulham. Now, he's not comparing him in terms of like pure ability. Berbatov's obviously a complete one-off um, and, uh, you know, was a world-class player at his peak. But Keith, I mean... Again, I suppose there's always um, a sense that teams want as many hardworking players and, you know, great trainers. And I, again, another example that comes to mind is Carlos Tevez, who was apparently a terrible trainer at every club he was at. But he would he, he didn't certainly didn't play like that when he when he was on the pitch. But I mean, I'm sure you've come across players in your career where they don't look particularly impressive in training. Maybe they're they're holding back a little bit, but. If, but you can sort of indulge them because what happens on a Friday night, with whether it's in the League of Ireland or on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, elsewhere, um, you know, it makes up for it. Yeah, I, I've had a, I've had it with a number of players over the years, and it, it's, it's quite flipped. And the, the one that jumps to mind straight away is Craig Bellamy. You would, from the outside looking in, you think he wouldn't be a good trainer. He'd be somebody who'd be quite flippant and come in and think, "Oh, the world's against me. I don't want to be here." But he always played well on the weekend. He was totally the opposite of Bellamy. He was a brilliant trainer. He trained like his heart, like his life depended on it. Even in the gym, he would go into the gym and give 100%. He was a trained like a mad thing. And then you, you would go to the likes of Benny McCarthy, who really didn't care. He was just torn up and trained whatever he would like. But then a Saturday would roll around and he, he was just unbelievable. But we, we had a nickname for You remember Rocky Santa Cruz? That yeah, yeah I remember Paraguayan striker, yeah. Monday to Friday, we wouldn't see him. He he was he would turn up on a Saturday and play. And we it, it, this happened for about three months straight where we didn't see him train. He'd play on a Saturday, it'd be unbelievable. And he got the nickname Rose Santa Cruz because he was just during the week you would not see him, but what a player. And again, it's it's the worst thing in the world for managers because you want to slap the player on the wrist when he don't train well, but in the back of your mind is Saturday. And I've had I've had training sessions myself for Preston and Bonnie where they haven't been brilliant. And the manager will just put an arm around you and say, you weren't great today, son. So it's all on Saturday. If you don't play well Saturday, you're going to get a slapping. I saw. I, I loved that sort of pressure where it was trolling and it was all on a Saturday. But by and large, looking back now, being that bit older, I realise now talent is not like a tap. You don't just turn it on and off as you like. It has to be an everyday thing. It has to be a standards that you meet, meet and reach every single day. So looking back, I would have tried to train a little bit harder, but. I was one of them where training was like, you know, it is what it is. I don't want to get injured and I want to push on to Saturday. But I think even now in, the, in this modern era, if you're a player who turns around every Saturday, every Tuesday, and you don't particularly train well, the managers, yeah, there's not a lot they can say, is there? Just, as long as you're playing well and the, when the chips are down. You're yeah, it's always... easier for centre-forwards as well, isn't it? There's oh, yeah. Centre-forwards, centre-forwards. Score yeah. goals, you stay in the team. Even as a winger, I, I would run at, a, run at a right back, a left back for, you know, 80 minutes of the game and he could stop me every single time I go forward. But that one time I get it on my feet and whip it and somebody heads it in, they go, oh, Keith had a great game. So <laughs> it, it is quite difficult for defenders. But as, as flair players, as wingers, as strikers, you get that little bit of leeway that if you play well on a Saturday, you're in and you're okay. Yeah, and then Waterford, uh, speaking of playing well, played brilliantly at Drada United and 1-4-1. Darley, he with a couple of goals, uh, two headers, and also Padraig Amund on his return to the league also uh, got his first, um, I think as he jokingly tweeted, uh, or it's not called Twitter anymore, is it? But anyway, I'll just keep calling it tweeting and etc. And you, you get my point, but that uh, his 13-year goal drought in the League of Ireland is over. So that was great for him. But I think the main point, Kevin Doherty from a Drada United point of view, Paul, was, um, was pretty you know, was hugely disappointed with the way his team uh, defended, and I think the quote he said was, "I could put it down to players not doing their jobs as they were told, as, as they were told to do." And looking at the goals, you know, there was no tracking of runners, uh, whether it was an open play, but also when it came to set pieces, which was I think three of Waterford's goals came from that source. Yeah, absolutely, and it kills you, Raf. It just kills you. You know, you can you can be so creative and work the ball as well as you can, but if you're not able to kind of defence at pieces and just do the basics right it absolutely kills the momentum of the game and I mean Daryl Lee was like a magnet in the box on Friday night and uh, listen he's done well to pick up his two goals and I think he was instrumental then in the Amund one as well where he's knocked the back cross goal but it, it just kills you from a management point of view when you're looking at your team and you set them up in a certain way to go out and play a certain way and then three instances 
of a ball going into the box and just not being hungry enough or, or aggressive enough to go and attack the ball and you concede sloppy, sloppy goals. So that's certainly something that Doherty be looking at in regards to kind of stamping it out. And probably doesn't help that they've lost Keeley because Keeley's such a big presence in a, from a centre-half point of view, probably put his head to a lot of things for them last season. Probably needs now somebody like a Jack Keeney who's come in from UCD to take a bit of ownership and leadership with the likes of Gary Deegan just to be organised and diligent because... With Drahada, I mean, a lot of their play is, is, and a lot of their results will come from being difficult to beat. And you cannot have a situation where you're leaking three or four goals um, on a weekly basis and be expecting to to kind of pick up points. And I mean, even if you look at the the timing of the first from Waterford's point of view, it's a minute after Drahada have gone 1-0 up. And you just think after scoring, be difficult to play against, play the percentages, play in Waterford's half and, and try to pick up a second. So it's it will certainly hurts Kevin and, and his backroom team, but it's something that can be quite easily rectified. If just a bit of organization, bit of leadership and somebody taking ownership of those situations and you stamp that out because with the draw that we've seen over the last two years, it's very, very uncharacteristic to see them conceding so many goals and probably being that little bit sloppy. Yeah. And uh, Dundalk, uh, Dund- or Drada's great rivals, um, they had played well. They played well against Jamrock Rovers last week on the on the opening night in Tala. But again, uh, Keith, I mean, looking at the the way Galway United dismantled them, and and Galway won two 0 but they also hit the woodwork a couple of times outside of that as well. That it is horses for courses. I mean, you can set up to to play against Shamrock Rovers and try and hit on the break and look very impressive doing that. But then maybe when the onus is more on yourself and you're up against a a team as direct as Galway, um, it can it can it can very much flip very quickly and even. Um, I suppose that distinction as well between what's a long ball and what's a long pass and there's that uh, second goal that Galway scored the one that uh, A. Durvin um, put in the back of the net from Regan Donlan's what you could call a long ball but in truth when you're looking at it it's that precise and it's aimed in a good area that it's really a, a long pass yeah, well, look, I, 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 Sam Allardyce used to shout this all the time. It's not, a, it's not a long ball. It's a ball forward with quality. So you're not just kicking it up there aimlessly. You're, you're putting it into decent areas. You're asking defenders to do things. And look, I, I think if you're Galway and you're setting up against Dundalk, you know they're going to have the lion's share of the ball. They're going to move from left to right. Again, I think Dundalk had 70% of the possession and you get beat 2-0. So... When you go to the dock, if, if you're going, you see, right, we sit up, we defend balls into the box, anything neat and in and around us, we make them play around us. But when we win it, we put the ball up front and we transition really, really quickly. And it, it was just, it was brilliant from the dock. I remember the, the quarterfinals of the, the FEI Cup final, they got each other in Galway, battered on dock that day. That was in Galway, but to beat them 2 0 in Dundalk, second game of the season, it's a, it's a really, really good result for Galway. I don't think a, a lot of teams, even Shamrock Rovers, Pats, I don't think anybody be looking at Galway thinking we'll turn them over easy enough because they're, they're really well drilled. They defend balls into their box really, really well. And I know Pats turned them over the first game of the season, but I think a lot of people would struggle to go and get three points in Galway. I don't think it's, it's going to be a done deal. And I think the thing, Galway don't surprise you. Like they, Tactically, they don't come and give you anything that you thought, oh, I didn't see them doing this. They get the ball, they put it into the box, they don't mess around with it in city areas, they defend well, and their work rate is through the roof, which you would expect given their, given their manager. So nobody's going to fancy playing this Galway team, and I think they have enough, Raph. I think I've already seen in the last two games, the, the back end of the FAI Cup last season, I think they'll be strong enough. I, I'm not sure who's going to be the whipping boys this year with no UCD. It could be any any one of the, any, any of probably about four, but I think Galway, I think Wharton for the both shown that you know, they're up for the fight and they want to stay in the Premier Division this year. Yeah, which uh, Paul, I suppose, is crucial for Sligo Rovers. They've got the, a couple of points now on the board and the, the most recent one at home to Derry City. And now it wasn't the best of games looking at it and even looking at the flags behind the railway end uh, in the showgrounds. It, it wasn't conducive to playing good football. But I guess out of the two, uh, Derry, who seem to have more chances, will be obviously the more disappointed given the ambitions they have. But uh, Sligo will probably come out uh, the happier, um, given again that they, they remain unbeaten so far. It looked difficult, the conditions up there. Even the, even the pitch looked like it had a bit of a bobble in it. But I think, I was saying this last week, I, I think from Derry's perspective in particular, when Shamrock Rovers don't win, I think Derry need to win. Um, and early on, if you can start to open up a bit, a bit of a gap against them, maybe it gives you a bit more confidence as, as opposed to what happened last year. And their aspirations have to be 
that they're going to win the league and that they they need to do everything they can to win the league. So, yes, Sligo is a very difficult place to go. And I actually thought they looked a bit more structured and set up this time around than what maybe they showed at the end of last year, where sometimes they rolled over a bit. But for Derry, I think they'll probably view that result on Saturday as a bit of a missed opportunity. You saw the some of the chances they had. They looked particularly kind of dangerous down that left-hand side with Duffy and McElhenney drifting into those areas with patching. And you just hope kind of with with Pat Huben at the top end of the pitch that they could have supplied him with maybe just a bit more of a a clinical opportunity or two to to put it to bed. And you kind of hope that you get out of there with a scrappy 1-0 win. You open up a bit of a gap already on Shamrock Rovers, but it wasn't to be. I mean, Daniel Kelly had a, a very good chance later on and McGinty's done well to save. But I, I just view, and I think if anybody is to take advantage of Shamrock Rovers slip-ups, whoever it is, when Shamrock Rovers drop points, you need to win games. And, and you need to try to do whatever you can to open up a bit of a gap against them because, yeah, they've they've dropped points in their first two, but they will come good and they will go on one of those run of forms. And it's just whether or not the likes of a Derry City have enough in the tank to go and put teams to bed. So I I thought, particularly having known the results from Friday night, that they, they might have gone to Sligo and win. And listen, it's not the worst result. And more will come from that Derry City side. But I just thought that was a bit of a missed opportunity. But for Sligo and John Russell... It, it looked, like I mentioned, like a bit more of a Sligo performance. Um, they started the season quite well last year and then they, they seemed to roll over in games, Raph, and that was certainly something that you began to worry about because they were leaking a lot of goals and they were becoming very easy to play against and very easy to beat. A clean sheath, McGinty back in goals, that sort of foundation and that sort of base is certainly something that they can build on. The fact that they've got Max Matt at the top end of the pitch, goals are back on that side. I think Conor Malley's a good signing from Dundalk. I think he's creative when he gets into those positions and it's just how much they can extract from those types of players will maybe determine where it is they're going to end up at, um, you know, come to the end of the season. And Keith mentioned it. There's no UCD this year. It's very, very difficult to, to look at that table and go, okay, that's going to be the bottom one or two. I probably thought it was going to be Waterford, but Waterford has started really well. Um, and for Sligo, it's very important. The expectations of the fans up there, what they've done in previous years, they've won cups, they've been competitive. They have to at least get on that journey of getting back to that situation. And their home form is going to be very important. And that wasn't a bad point on Saturday. Yeah, and as we come into the first uh, Friday, Monday, Friday of the season, Derry City are probably the ones that will be the ones to watch and literally in the sense of you can watch an RT2 and RT player on Friday, this Friday, Derry City against St. Pat's and uh, you can check the full fixture list on rt.ie slash sport and also the RTE news app but after they play Pat's on Friday, Derry then on Monday they are away at Shamrock Rovers so that's a, a huge kind of six pointer there for them and uh, that could uh, obviously colour how the start of the season is looked at for them depending on how it goes but first division the results on Friday night, Cove Ramblers and Athlone Town drew, drew 3-all in a thriller there where Athlone came, or sorry, Cove Ramblers came from 3-1 uh, down to, to earn a point there at Turner's Cross, which is where they're playing at the moment while they get the pitch laid down at uh, St. Commons Park. And um, Finn Harps and Cork City drew 1-all. Kerry lost 3-2 at home to Bray Wanderers and then Treaty United were 1-0 winners away at UCD. And then the Wexford-Longford game was called off due to a waterlogged pitch. And just in terms of goals to look out for from, from that, Kevin Williams scored a crack in opener for Kerry. But of course, as I said, they lost uh, 3-2 and the weather seemed to get uh, progressively worse as the game went on. And then, of course, uh, Treaty United, the only team in either of the two divisions to have got a maximum six points with that one with that win um at UCD and that was thanks to an end current goal. So uh we're gonna before we go turn our attentions to what's happening outside of Ireland at the moment and the Carabao Cup final. Of course there was a bit of Irish interest here uh with uh particularly on the Liverpool side with Queevee and Kelleher in goals, but also uh Connor Bradley um who and you know who continued uh, who's continued his rise and has uh, got the first uh, medal of his career. And Paul, you were over at Wembley and uh, you know we were talking off air before we started you know the atmosphere and i suppose the, the venue itself is just uh, something to behold but what did you make of the game as it went on yeah i mean it was it was a really good day out and as nil all goes in the 90 minutes there was there was plenty of action and the plenty happened within it's it's a game i, I know keith kind of mentioned there about pats and bows and and having a feeling that bows are going to win a one nil i had a feeling that Liverpool were going to win the longer the game went on because chelsea just so inefficient in front of goal and Listen, they had the chances and they got into really good areas and Keller pulled off some great saves. But 
particularly the Palmer chance, like you got to put that away. There's the Enzo Fernandez chance at the start of the second half, another one that gets away. Conor Gallagher in the 1v1. There was also instances where they got into really dangerous areas and they just couldn't find the right pass or, or the right moment to exploit the, the Liverpool back four. And it just felt the longer it went on, Chelsea weren't going to be able to score. And I think when they reflect on it, they'll certainly feel like it's it's one that got away. I think some of the comments have been slightly harsh on Chelsea. I thought they, they played quite well, albeit not Liverpool's strongest side. I thought they played well on the day and they create, certainly created enough to go and win. But there's that lack of sort of killer instinct or ruthlessness within Chelsea that they have to create so many chances to put teams to bed or even to, to score a goal. And that's been something that's been consistent throughout the season. I mean, Jackson just hasn't done it enough this season. And... The longer it went on, the more it felt like it was going to go Liverpool's way. And I mean, you can't take away from the Liverpool result because they were without so many bodies. I mean, the list of players that weren't even on the bench yesterday, they all would have either started or come on ahead of some of the younger kids that, that entered the game in, in the final moments. And I mean, some of the, the play, like Kelleher, I can't explain how good Queeven Kelleher was yesterday, Raf. Not only with his, his distribution, how comfortable he looks in the ball, but... Previously, you, you would have looked at him and thought he's he's not small, he's quite tall, but his presence has some sometimes felt like you put a high ball in there and he could be in a bit of trouble. You can sort of see that the shoulders have come back. There's a confidence within his game. And that probably comes from playing games with Alisson being out and the, uh, the Europa League this year. He was absolutely fantastic. His decision to come out and smother Conor Gallagher, the save from uh, Palmer, he was just flawless. Everything he did was absolutely perfect. And then you've got players like Van Dijk. I mean, it was so fitting that he went and, and scored the winning goal because he's been at the forefront of everything Liverpool have done. And then other individual performance were very strong. But I, I felt anyway on the balance of play, Chelsea probably did enough to win the game. But that's not to take away from Liverpool and what they did. The fact that they had those three young academy players on the pitch at the end um, to go and win it from there was was a massive achievement. Um, and the goal, you know, was very fitting that it went to Van Dijk. Yeah, Kelleher was immaculate, according to Gary Neville. And this was just coming up to halftime and extra time. Obviously, that wasn't the quote that uh, caught most people's attentions anyway. <laughs> but uh, I presume, Paul, you don't want to you don't want to hear it repeated again, uh, the uh, the bottle jobs thing. But Keith, uh, just on, you know, the both teams were actually quite young. The teams that were named in terms of average age. I mean, Chelsea's one was actually younger than Liverpool's when the game kicked off. Obviously, Liverpool then, you know, with substitutions and then the more academy players that came on, that uh, drastically went down to about an average age of 20 from 25 originally. Um, so we're looking at two young teams, but it's a very, very different model. Obviously, Chelsea have sort of splurged on what are supposedly high high potential players. Liverpool, it's a very different model where Klopp, and I think the term Klopp's kids is being used, but they're trusting academy players in big moments. Yeah, they, they trusted the academy players in big moments. <clears throat> it's not as straightforward as, you know, Klopp wanted to play the kids in the final, so he did it. I think his hands were tied given the amount of injuries he had and there was a lot of players out there. Luis Diaz was out on his feet towards the end as well. A lot of tired bodies, but the narrative of Klopp's kids beating the Blues, billionaire bottle jobs, it's, it's a little bit false because the Chelsea team is just as young, if not younger, than the Liverpool team. So... Look, okay, Gusto at right back, Caldwell, the centre-half. There's a lot of young boys in this Chelsea team, but we view them that little bit differently because they've got six, seven-year contracts. They're on 120 grand a week already. And you, you sort of think, oh, well, they've made it because their financial situation and their contract situation tells you they've made it. But that's not quite the case because they're still really, really young kids. And we're not sure what we're going to get out of them either way. So, look, with, with Chelsea, I just... It, it, they're just too wasteful in front of goal. They, they seem okay everywhere, but just too wasteful. And the Palmer chance, it's a brilliant save from, from Cuevin and Kelleher, but it should hit the back of the net. He should score that. The, the, uh, the Gallagher chance, I think it's brilliant uh, defending from Kelleher because as the ball is coming over, it's a little bit of a slow ball. Gallagher's looks and he takes his touch and looks up and all of a sudden Kelleher's on top of him. He can do nothing but kick it off. And so that was brilliant goalkeeping. But, you just sort of felt Liverpool will get this done. They're just that they'll get over the line somehow. They'll do it. The the disallowed goal, the Van Dijk force goal that was disallowed. It's a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. You look at it and you think it's a goal. They, them sort of things happen every single set piece. But letter of the law, I can see why it wasn't given. I think it's the right decision. It would great. I mean, had I been a Liverpool player running around in that pitch, I'd have been given out to the to the high heavens that it shouldn't. It should have been a goal, but. 
with the VAR, with, with where Colwell would have ended up, where the ball landed, he would have been in the vicinity to make, you know, defended that little bit better. So it is a foul. It, as I said, it grates on you, but it is a foul. And yeah, look, I, I, I don't know where Chelsea go from here. Like, I don't know how Pochettino drops the hammer. I don't know how he slaps people on the wrist. I don't know how he motivates them because the young Liverpool kids, they're playing for the future because they've only got 18 months, two years. They're unproven. They're not on the 100, 100 grand deals. So they're still hungry. They're still wanting to go. Whereas the Chelsea young boys, you know, they're, they're comfortable. They're financially comfortable. They're all right for the next couple of years. The likes of, and I, I hate saying Mudrick because I feel like I'm picking on him. I, I say it that much, but it's an eight-year deal. How do you motivate somebody who's on... 100 grand plus and he's on an eight-year deal. I, I, I think it's nonsensical. I think there has to be a fire in the lad's belly. There has to be. And if you've got that much financial stability and you, you know at that much of a length of contract, how do you how do you fight how do you look how do you look a fire under these lads? I, I just don't understand it. And I don't envy Pochettino. I really, really don't. I think the dressing room is getting away from him there. Not because he's a bad manager, just because of the length of contracts. I think you have to be an unbelievable professional. To still start going at you know 100% running through brick walls, going to the well, knowing that well, I'm going to be here longer than the manager anyway, so it doesn't really matter what he says to me. So, yeah, I, I find it very hard to get behind Chelsea. You have an awful lot of talent in that building, and any given day, they can click like they did against Manchester City, they can click, they can give you a bit, but I think more often than not, they'll be disjointed. And with the whole host of players coming in, coming out, I think it's probably what's to be expected. Everybody thinks Pochettino is a great manager, he'll get it right, but. It's not as easy as that. It really isn't as easy as that. You need a, a whole host of characters to get it right. So Chelsea, an awful lot of work to do. Liverpool, not at the brilliant best, but just winning games. Yeah. Just on that, that one, yes. one observation from, from being in the ground, sometimes you, you can't gauge it as much on the television. The game has become so technical, particularly in the middle of the pitch. I mean, when you've got inverted wingers or wingers drifting into the middle of the pitch you've got fullbacks coming in there there's so many bodies around that centre circle and you have to be so technical to play in those areas and it, it just accelerates so quickly and some of the play essay was just fantastic I thought Saicedo had a really good game I was, a lot of people say he was lucky to be on the pitch but his ability to break up the play and then link it with Fernandez and Gallagher in those tight areas it, it's just it's brilliant to be in the ground and watch and similarly so Harvey Elliott McAllister Endo I thought had a fantastic game you don't probably appreciate how technical and how good they are in tight areas and how much they risk the ball playing out from the back until you're in the ground. And I just thought that was something that was, it was great to be there and see two of the top sides going at it against one another. And if you bring that back to our kind of pathway plan, as the FAI have put it together, you have to be so technical to play at the top end of the, of the game. And I would even say from from my time when I was in the UK, I'm sure it was a key, it's gone up levels again. It, it really, really has. And players are just machines, but not only are they machines, able to control the ball in tight areas, being able to find gaps, being able to find spaces is just incredible. And I thought both sides did that really, really well, I think. Yeah, which is incredible then when you look at like Sam Curtis already being uh, called up to the bench for Sheffield United as well. So the, the step up he's, got, he's had to make and he's that fairly close because I thought um I thought Paul this was going to be something we're going to have to wait till probably next season and again he hasn't made his debut yet but he's um I think as we found out last week training with the Sheffield United first team and the fact he's on the bench already it's a good sign of progress yeah it is and listen a lot of the opportunities came about for those Liverpool players was the fact that people were out injured or, or through suspension or whatever that might be and similarly for Curtis Holgate was out um through suspension yesterday and that brings about him sitting or being on the bench and maybe that will bring an opportunity for him further down the line but I'm sure key to be able to talk to this anytime I saw Sam Curtis as a young lad I mean he just oozes confidence he's not fearful of situations and he certainly wouldn't have been fearful if had he been thrown onto onto the pitch yesterday and he will certainly be somebody who will eat up opportunities when they come his way if you're looking at maybe longevity and, and where he's going to get those opportunities, maybe Sheffield United going down is is probably better for him, Raph, in the longer term because some players will have to leave, some will have to go out the building and maybe then once he gets a preseason under his belt, he's got a real good opportunity of playing consistently within that Sheffield United side. Now, that is sounds a lot easier than what the reality of it is. He probably has a couple of levels to go up from where he was playing in the League of Ireland and physically maybe he might need to develop as he enters his kind of late teen years and in his early 20s. But from a technical perspective and from an attitude perspective, I mean, he has done particularly well over the last number of years. And I'm 
absolutely certain that when his opportunity comes, he'll he won't shy away from us. He's he's not that type of personality. He's not that type of player. And Sheffield United difficult situation at the moment, but I'm sure over the next six to twelve months you'll see Curtis playing within that side. Yeah, and I suppose the final point before we go, and this is uh, Adam either Keith, and you know uh, he he he's he already scored two penalties uh, for Celtic um, after going up there on deadline day, and uh, he's gone and scored his first two from open play uh, against Motherwell yesterday, and I guess the welcome Matt, from the club was was great, but the fans seemed there seemed to be a little bit of misgivings about whether you know when they're looking to invest in a striker whether Adam Ida was the one they really wanted yet. So far, he's proving, and I mean, obviously he's got qualities in terms of his hold-up play and um, his ability to run in the channels, his strength, his height, etc. But this is the way, you know, getting, you know, goals are the currency he needs and uh, he's showing that right now. Yeah, his, uh, his force goal in particular after header was brilliant, brilliant forward play. As, as a winger, when I see goals like that, I think that's a forward I'd love to play with because you just get the ball out of your feet, you put it into a decent area and he's in and amongst it. So, that header was brilliant. I was impressed with his second goal as well because he stays within the width of the goal. If you come outside the width of the goal, Rafa, it's so difficult to hit them thing, to hit them uh, balls forced time. If he comes outside there, it makes the finish a lot harder. So it's like he's thinking about where he is in terms of pitch geography, where he needs to stay. And like you, you look at Erling Haaland. I know Adam Eden and Erling Haaland are a million miles apart, but look at Erling Haaland's movement. He might pop out to the the middle of the pitch and, or sorry, the wings get a little bit of interplay, but you'll see him looking over his shoulder and think, I don't want to be out here. I'm not going to score a goal from out here. So he gets back into the middle of the pitch. And Adam Ede is now, his positioning is an awful lot better. And I'm with you, Raph, when when Ida went to Celtic, I'm listening to an awful lot of Celtic fans and I'm thinking, that's not the signing we wanted. It, it sort of felt like the Celtic fans thought, oh, that's a bad sign. And I thought, well, give him a chance, see how he does forced. And thankfully now, he's starting to score goals from open play. He looks decent, hold the play. And, if he can get a little bit of confidence in that Celtic team, Brendan Rodgers, I hear, is putting in an awful lot of work behind the scenes with him one-on-one sessions, which makes him feel loved. The Celtic fans, 60,000, 70,000 Celtic fans screaming his name as well. If he can get that little bit of confidence and all of a sudden put it into an Irish jersey, we all know Evan Ferguson is going to be the one there. But can we swat to a two? Can we have a big man and a small man? Can Adam Eda force his way into that Irish team? Possibly, if he keeps playing well for Celtic, there's every chance of it starting games and scoring goals. But yeah, really, really good from him. And I'm delighted for him because he, he's such a good lad and he's a good, good walk rate. And the mute music coming out of Celtic, it, it, it felt a little bit, un- it didn't seem right to me straight away. Like they, they, they sort of said, oh, well, he's not right for Celtic straight off the bat. And now he, he's starting to score goals. So I'm delighted for him and long may it continue. Yeah, and much needed goals as well with the way Rangers are going and uh, watching that first half yesterday against Motherwell, Celtic were pretty awful, but then fortunately they, they had Ida to come off the bench and turn around. But uh, anyway, that brings us to a close for today. Um, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the Ireland women's uh, friendly against Wales is on uh, RT2 and the RT player on Tuesday. And then Friday, it's going to be Derry against St. Pat's on the same channels as well. But uh, Keith Tracy and Paul Curry, thanks for your time. Cheers, Raph. Cheers, Raph.